Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. I am excited to bring the word to you. Uh, and if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series we've been in for the last eight weeks entitled Wise Up. And uh, my wife preached last week, and I can't recall if she forced us to do it at this service, but I'm going to make you do it. Why don't you turn to the person next to you, slap them on the shoulder, and tell them with a little bit of attitude, you better wise up, son. You better wise up. <laughs> By the way, that message last weekend was amazing on the subject of pride. Uh, If you missed it, I highly encourage you to check it out on the YouTube or on the podcast. It was a powerful, powerful message she brought. Almost like she had some real life examples living with her at home, people who had a lot of pride. I mean, it was just crazy. Those kids of mine, man, they're just prideful little girls, man. You got to work it out of them, but... Uh, really, really good word. Uh, if, again, if you are joining us, uh, we have been looking at, if you're joining us, you're all joining us. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs and we are learning how to apply some of its ancient wisdom to our modern lives. Uh, our key verse is in the opening verses of Proverbs chapter one, where King Solomon, the predominant author of the book and the wisest man to ever live, as scripture teaches us, uh, begins to unpack his purpose and his intent behind authoring many of these Proverbs. He says in Proverbs 1, verse 1, These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise, to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, and to help them do what is right, what is just, and what is fair. Uh, As that text reminds us, and as we remind ourselves of every single week as we go to this book, biblical wisdom, the definition of biblical wisdom is applied knowledge. It isn't simply knowing what to do, it's actually following through with that knowledge and applying it to your life. There's a lot of people that know the right thing but aren't doing the right thing, but Solomon says wisdom is to do what is right, what is just, and what is fair. Uh, Today, we're going to look at yet another proverb and unpack a principle that we can apply to our lives. But before we do that, I I want to invite, especially at this service, a lot of people to an event that we're hosting next weekend uh, that I think we can glean some wisdom from and apply the knowledge of the scriptures. And and the reason I wanted to include this in the sermon today is so that I could look some people in the face and I could look a camera in the face and invite all of those who are watching online and in the room who find themselves in a particular group of seasons, because here's what I've discovered. There's a bit of a narrative running around the father's house. Yes, even in a church like this, there's some people who talk and they don't know what they're talking about. And so I need to set the record straight on an event that we're putting on next week so that we're all clear on what it is and what it is not. Here's the event. Single, dating, searching. We've announced this now for the last couple of weeks. Let me be clear about what this event is not. This is not a meat market put on by the father's house, okay? I was talking to a couple of guys before the first service and like, I'm not coming. And these are leaders at our church. And they're like, I'm not coming. I'm like, yes, you are. And no, no, I'm not. Why? Well, because, you know, I'm not trying to date anyone right now. I don't want to be put in this weird situation where I'm meeting other people. I'm like, who told you that that's what this event was? And and apparently there's some rumors. So I'm going to set the rumors straight. It's not a meat market. This is not like a, you know, single and ready to mingle and get a couple of phone numbers before I leave, scoping and hoping event. That's not what this is, all right? Speed dating Jesus style. No, that's not it. Nor is it a rebuke session where a couple of people sit on stage and pontificate about their brilliance and tell you why everyone is doing it wrong. Here's what this is. This is an opportunity to search the scriptures 
and hear from some voices that have a little bit of wisdom in this area so that we can do these three seasons of life with wisdom. If you're single, if you're dating, if you're searching, tell you what, you will not find wisdom in the culture you live in right now. They are doing this very wrong right now. And we need to know what the word of God has to say about these things. And so we are going to have on stage a single pastor who is doing it well right now. We are going to have a young couple that did it well before they got married and they, they operated with wisdom. We're going to have a counselor who is sitting in the front row right now who helps other people do those seasons of life well. And we're going to have Robin and I on stage who screwed up the whole thing when we were younger, but then learned some lessons in the process. And we're gonna do our best to tell you how not to do things. And we're gonna all offer a little bit of wisdom. And I think this is an area where a lot of young adults in our, and maybe even older adults in our community could use some wisdom. So please don't miss out on this because you bought into the wrong narrative. I'd love for you to join us. I'd love for you to join us. We're not going to film it, so you got to get to bunch of church if you want to be a part of it. It is next Sunday in the evening at 6 p.m., all right? Is that okay? All the single people said, all the dating people said, <laughs> self-control, restrain yourself, restrain yourself. Okay, good. All right, let's get into the word for today. Uh, we're going to be looking at two scriptures this morning. Uh, one is found in the book of Proverbs, and the other is not. However, it is also authored by King Solomon. Uh, Solomon wrote three of what we would call the wisdom books, or wisdom literature in the scriptures. Uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the book of Ecclesiastes. And today we're going to look at a proverb and one of his writings in his latter years in the book of Ecclesiastes, because the concept I want to unpack gains a little bit more clarity if we couple it with these two specific verses. So let, let's start in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25. He says this. Don't trap yourself by making a rash promise to God and then only later counting the cost. It's a trap to make a rash promise to God and then later count the cost. Well, what do you mean by that, Solomon? Well, he goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 5, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do is wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. When you make a vow to him, don't delay to fulfill it. He takes no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And then I love this verse. Talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. Come on, the Bible's using some hood language this morning. Talk is cheap. Don't talk about it, just be about it. I, I almost titled this, cha this chat, Cheap Talk and Useless Daydreams. And I'm like, nah, it's a little too aggressive even for me. So here's what I wanna call the sermon this morning. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I wanna call it, set it and forget it. Set it and forget. Anyone old enough to remember that reference? Okay, more in this service. Uh, for those who are not old enough to remember, back in the early 2000s, we had these things called infomercials. And when you were sick from school, you'd stay home and you'd watch The Price is Right and you'd watch infomercials. And there was a guy named Ron Papil and he was selling this thing called the Showtime Rotisserie. It was where you could cook chicken on a rotisserie in your own kitchen. And every time he would put a piece of meat on the rotisserie, he would make a statement. He'd say, all you have to do is set it and then the studio audience would repeat, and? Forget it. Yeah, just like that. So let's try it today. Set it, and? Forget it. All right, welcome to the cult. Good to have you guys. All right, awesome. I'm just kidding. It's not that. Let's pray as, uh, as we get into the word. 
Father, we welcome you over these next couple of moments to speak to each of us individually and specifically. Just even picture yourself doing this right now. Would you just open up your heart to receive from the Holy Spirit? We thank you that your word has the power to meet us exactly where we're at, to direct our steps. You say it, it is a light unto our path. It shows us how to walk. And today we need that in this particular area. As we've prayed every single week, we pray once again, James chapter one. You said, if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask you for it and you will not rebuke us for asking, you'll give it to us freely. So we ask for wisdom in the area of making vows today. In Jesus' name and the church said, amen, amen. Uh, this has been a busy season in the Father's house, uh, specifically in the area of weddings. I feel like I have never been invited to officiate or attend more weddings in a 12-month period than I have over the last year. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Our church has grown, as you can look around and notice, and there's a lot of people in the Father's house in that particular season of life where they are getting married or uh, they, they have just gotten married. And so it's been a joy to celebrate with a lot of people. But the other reason I found myself at a lot of weddings in the last year is because there's this new trend that was developed during COVID where people are now having two weddings instead of just one wedding. Uh, they, they start with a smaller wedding. Uh, there's a few friends and maybe a couple of family members and they, they do all the things you do in a regular wedding, but then they do it again, like six months later or a year later, and they invite some of the same people, but there's a much bigger party and a large celebration. And you know, it's, it's a bit of a head scratch to me, but no condemnation for those of you who've done the two wedding thing. I won't look in this particular direction because I know somebody who's doing it. But all I'm saying is don't get mad when next year I invite you to my wedding again. I'll be married for 19 years and I expect gifts, all right? Just, yeah, that's, that's how we're getting down. Uh, but I've said this before and I was reminded of it as a, at a wedding a few weeks ago. Um, my favorite moment at any given wedding ceremony is the exchanging of vows. I love it when the bride and groom are looking at each other. And, and by the way, I don't mean the, the like traditional vows, the you know, have and hold, sickness, health, all that stuff. I'm talking about the personal vows that everybody writes right now. I love it. It's that moment where the officiant says, and now the bride and groom have prepared some personal vows for one another and they step out of the way and they hand over the microphone and the bride and the groom, they look each other in the eyes and, and, and tears are falling. And for like three to five minutes, they just, they just lie to one another. <laughs> about all the things they're gonna do for the rest. Come on, because y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of the vows these people are... Those of you who've been married for a little bit of time, you're like, nah, you ain't gonna do that. I hate to break it to you, sweetheart. He is not gonna give you a massage every single day of your life. Robin can attest. Amen. She is not gonna laugh at all your jokes. She's gonna roll her eyes. And that promised kiss before bed a few months from now is gonna be contingent on whether or not you brushed your teeth, all right? That is just how marriage goes down. I'm being honest with you today. But, but, but we were at a, a wedding a, f a few weeks ago, and uh, it was for a couple here in the church, Caitlin and Tim Santos. Amazing couple. They're on our worship team. <laughs> yeah, you can give it up for them. That's great. They're not here today. They're still on their honeymoon. Uh, I think they've been in Bali for two weeks. I'm like, way to go. Uh, but uh, I w they're like really poetic people, and they're musicians. And they got to that moment in the ceremony where they were exchanging personal vows, and it was, a, it was a powerful moment. Like they had everybody in the room crying as they began to articulate their love for one another. It was significant. But they concluded their vows, both of them used this, this little phrase that was a bit jarring for all of us in the audience. And it kind of made us go like, well, that's, that's a weird thing to say at a wedding. And, and, and you'll understand why I say that when I share the words with you. As each of them concluded 
their vows, they said this, there's no way out. <laughs> Found out later, it's like etched inside their wedding rings. There's no way. Now, depending on your facial expression, when you make that statement, that can be a bit alarming. Like, like there's no way out. In fact, I don't know that there's a single facial expression where that phrase is not completely creepy. Like, it's even worse if you're smiling, right? There's no way out. <laughs> Very weird statement to make at the end of your vows. But despite the serial killer vibes of that statement, I, I appreciate the heart behind it. I appreciate the intent. In fact, I love it. Because that is a massive statement of commitment. In saying there's no way out, what they were vowing to one another is, I don't know what the next 50, 60, 70 years of our lives are gonna look like. I don't know what seasons we're gonna walk through. I don't know if we're gonna be in lack or in plenty. I don't know if we're gonna be in sickness or in health. I know that this life has a way of throwing things at you that you don't expect. However, regardless of what we walk through, come hell or high water, I am committed to you and I'm gonna see this thing through until death do we part. I love the heart of that statement. And as I read the scriptures that we just read a moment ago, and as I studied them out this week, I couldn't help but think about that moment where these two individuals looked at one another and said, there's no way out. Because the weight of Solomon's words here is suggesting that all of us should have a similar heart's intent when we make a commitment to God. That there should be a weightiness to our words. Consider again the language. This is aggressive language that Solomon uses here. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. When you make a vow, don't delay to fulfill it. He takes no pleasure in fools. So fulfill your vow. It's better not to make one in the first place than to make one and not fulfill it. Talk is, I mean, these are aggressive words that Solomon's using here. This isn't like the feel-good sermon that you expect when you walk into church or the way that you'd expect a bride and groom to exchange vows. He's saying this is serious business when we make a commitment to God. And Solomon is not the only guy in scripture that suggests we should have this kind of heart in our commitment. In fact, Jesus said, in echoing the sentiment in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, when you make a promise, you should not have to swear to others that you're going to keep it. You shouldn't have to try to convince somebody by saying, oh, I swear by the heavens or I swear by the earth or I swear by the moon and the stars and the sky. Yeah, you shouldn't have to do that. Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Let there be a commitment, a vow in your heart, a weightiness to these words. Both Solomon and Jesus suggest that one of the, the defining traits of people of faith is their ability to keep their vows. But, but you don't have to hang around the body of Christ for very long to discover that that's a rare trait. Not just in our world, but even in our churches. That keeping commitments, keeping vows, it's difficult business. Like a well-meaning but ill-equipped bride and groom, I think a lot of us start making Vows with our lips that our character can't cash. We, we don't follow through. 
And I'm not just talking about the, the vows we make to other people, the promises we make to individuals, friends, family members, or even the, the vow that so many have broken that they made to a spouse on a wedding day. I'm talking about what, what Solomon's talking about here, the vows and commitments that we make to God. Like that time you said, if you get me out of this situation, I promise I'm gonna serve you. Or, or, or I, I'm giving this relationship, I'm, I'm laying it down because I know it's toxic, it's not from you, so I'm giving it over to you. But then when you got on the phone to tell the other person, they wooed you back in with their persuasive words and you broke that vow. Or, or, or the vow to pray, or the vow to read, or the vow to serve, or the vow to give. The promises and commitments we make to God that we break. I think all of us are guilty of this. And we need to be careful that our collective failure in this area of faith doesn't allow us to minimize the severity of the sin. As if to suggest, well, everybody does it. God's okay with it. It's, it's not that big a deal. We also need to be careful that the cultural normality of non-commitment does not poison our faith. That the culture we find ourselves in where everybody cancels everything and everyone's got a backup option in place that we don't begin to ascribe the same reality or mindset to the commitments we've made to God as if breaking a vow to him is akin to canceling a coffee date or asking for a rain check at dinner. We need to understand that Solomon uses such aggressive language here because this is a big deal to God. Yeah. Keeping the vows we've made to him is serious business. I, I, I was reading through some commentaries this week and I could not get away from one that was written by David Guzik, one of my favorite theologians. He says, a commonly overlooked and unappreciated sin among God's people is the sin of broken vows, promising things to God and failing to live up to those vows. Those who truly honor God will be serious about fulfilling the vows they've made and will regard the broken ones as sins to be confessed and repented of. Let the weight of that sink in for just a moment. Commonly overlooked, an unappreciated sin. In other words, this is a big deal to God, and if we find it in our lives, we need to be vigilant about fixing it. It's, it's, it's serious business. Now, let, let me let a little bit of air back into the room, because I can tell it's all gone, and I, I see your faces right now, and no one's happy with what I'm saying. So let, let me give a disclaimer. I am not suggesting that we're all wicked people that don't love God, that never meant to commit in the first place and we stand no chance. And that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make all of us feel like meaningless fleas in church on an 11 o'clock service on a Sunday. I, I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think most of us, when we vow things to God, we mean it. Our heart is pure. When we make a commitment to him, it's because our heart is attached to it. We want to fulfill that. But I think there is a trap that many of us don't realize we've fallen into and it's the same trap that Solomon speaks of here in Proverbs chapter 20. Here's what he said. It is a trap for somebody to make a vow, but then only later consider the cost of that vow. What he's saying is many of us step into these commitments without first realizing that there's an expense we're gonna have to incur. There's a cost associated with it. We didn't realize that Laying down that relationship didn't just have a physical cost, it had an emotional cost as well. We didn't realize that saying yes to the God opportunity meant that we were gonna have to say no to a lot of other good opportunities. 
As we read in our Bible reading plan this last week in 1 Corinthians, we didn't realize that when we said yes to giving our souls over to God, we also gave him our bodies. And scripture says you must honor God with your body because it's not your own any longer. So it's not mine. It's not my choice. It's his choice what I do with my body. And so what I do is supposed to be an act of worship. And it gets a little quiet. Listen, don't get it twisted. Every commitment comes with a cost. I think one of the great failures of modern preaching today is that we do not follow in the example of Jesus and accurately portraying the cost to follow him. We sell a version of the gospel that appeals to the consumer mindset of our culture without being clear that there is a cost to this thing. But that's not how Jesus preached. Let's let's talk some truth for a couple of moments. When Jesus issued the invitation to follow him, he made it clear there's gonna be a cost if you decide to be my disciple. He said in Luke chapter nine, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. If you love yourself, your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, anyone more than you love me, then you are not worthy to be my disciple. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And if you're going to follow me, you don't get to choose where you live anymore or the direction of your life anymore because the call is greater than your comfort. But if you cling to your comfort, you're going to lose your life. But if you lay it down for my sake, then you will truly find it. This is the way that Jesus preached. He did not mince words. He was very clear. There's a cost to this thing. But let's bring the nose of the plane up a little bit as well. He was also very clear that for those willing to embrace the cost, there is exponential benefit on the other side. Yes, it may cost you everything to follow Christ, but in return, you get all of him. You get salvation for your soul. You get forgiveness for your failures. You get mercy every single morning. You get provision for all of your needs. You get healing for your sickness, joy for mourning, beauty for ashes, gladness for a spirit of despair. Psalm 103 says, do not forget the benefits of the Lord. He heals all of your diseases. He forgives all of your sin. His mercy stretches out as far as the heavens are above the earth and he has forgotten your sin as far as the east is from the west. There's some benefits to this thing. That should at least elicit a little bit of a baby amen on a Sunday morning. There are some benefits, come on, to serving your God. He is good and he only does good as it says in Psalm 119. But those benefits, they are found on the other side of a line called commitment. Keeping one's vows. So, so allow me to pose a question to you that I posed to myself earlier this week, lest I be accused of allowing the scriptures not to search me first before presenting them to others. Here's the question. Have you broken any vows? Think about that for a moment. Commitments you've made to God. Promises. Statements made in prayer. Is there, is there a list of things that fall into the category of broken promises? Is there a weightiness to your words when you make commitments to the Lord? Or do you find yourself in a space of your yes meaning no and your no meaning yes? And if so, how do we restore integrity to our commitments and make sure that our yes truly does mean yes? Well, for that, we need to come back to the title of our conversation this morning. Take the advice from the great, late Ron Papil. We need to set it and 
Let's try that again. We need to set it and set it and forget it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when, when Solomon uses this language here in the book of Proverbs, it's meant to stir up an image in the mind of the readers. Uh, that image is lost on us a bit because of our modern context. Um, however, the readers of Solomon's day would have understood what he was referring to. And it's important that we understand what he's referring to because if we don't, we won't be able to accurately apply the principle that we're unpacking today. Um, in Solomon's day, uh, church looked a little bit different. Um, Jesus had not yet come as the Messiah. And since he had not yet come as the Messiah, the way in which people worshiped God was through offerings and sacrifices. Uh, and th there was a number of different practices with these offerings or sacrifices, depending on what you were trying to accomplish, whether it was a peace offering or a sin offering or a vow. But ultimately, people were required to bring things to an altar and lay them before the Lord. The predominant thing people brought before the Lord were lambs. <laughs> this was the main sacrifice. Now, here's where things get interesting and honestly a little bit complicated. The practice of the sacrifice was determined by the purpose of the offering. And in biblical times, there were five different kinds of offerings that were prescribed in the Old Testament. Today, we're not going to go through each one of those and talk about their purposes. Uh, however, I want to give you a good resource. If, if you are at all interested in doing some uh, deeper dive into the offerings, uh, there's a great podcast by the Bible Project, Tim and John, uh, and it's on the book of Leviticus. Someone just pointed me to it a couple of weeks ago here at church, and I listened to it. It is a powerful unpacking of the book of Leviticus, as if it could ever be done. It can be done. It's a great one, so I highly recommend it. However, today, we're going to look at two of those sacrifices because there are two that Solomon is referring to here and specifically encouraging us not to get them mixed up. The first of the animal sacrifices was known as the Ola offering. Now, the Ola offering is a Spanish offering that means hello. Okay. No. Thanks, babe. She does laugh at all my jokes. Hey, okay. No, the, the Ola offering is what the Bible most commonly refers to as the burnt offering. Uh, it is when an offerer would bring a lamb, they would place that lamb on this biblical altar, an accurate representation, and uh, it was to be burnt completely in the flames, and as the smoke from that offering arose, as the scent of that offering arose up to the heavens, it was a sign of complete surrender and worship unto God. In fact, the word means an offering of ascent. It means to go up. So picture the Ola offering, there's no lamb left at the end. It is completely and totally taken by the flames. The second offering that Solomon is referring to here is known as a Zevach offering. Now, the Zevach offering is very similar. It still involves bringing a lamb to an altar. It still involves placing that lamb over the flames. However, once the lamb is fully cooked, it does not have to remain to be consumed by the flames. The offerer themselves has the opportunity to consume the meat. In fact, the act of consuming the barbecued meat was also part of the worship. And all the barbecue-loving meat eaters in the room said, Amen. Yes, it is an act of worship when you eat ribs unto the Lord. 
Now, both of these are prescribed biblical offerings. Both are good. Both come from God. However, what Solomon warns us of here is getting the two offerings mixed up. Maybe better said, of claiming that you didn't intend to bring one offering and you intended it to be another. When he says, don't say to the temple messenger that you've made a mistake, what he's saying is, don't lay an Ola offering on the altar and say, I'm gonna let it burn, only to come back later and say, actually, I want my baby back, baby back, baby back, I want my baby back, baby. Now, if you brought it to the altar to be consumed completely, then you need to leave it there. Are you following? Okay, some of you are not. So, for your viewing pleasure, I have made a poem for you today, okay? I'm not a poet, but I wrote one this week. And I think that this poem will really help bring this concept together for the rest of us. Isaac, will you put that on the screen for me real quick? Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. So Mary sacrificed that lamb, and then she turned to go. <laughs> but as that lamb cooked on the grill, Mary smelled the meat. So Mary took those lamb chops off, and she Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> My children's book will be out next week. It's gonna be great. Are you understanding what Solomon's saying here? Hey, if you've made a commitment to God, if you've made a vow to him, there should be such a weightiness to your words that you say, I'm leaving this thing there and I have no intention of getting it back. I'm not gonna come back later on and change my mind. I'm not gonna suggest later on down the road that I made a mistake in offering that thing down to God. I am going to set it on that altar. I'm going to forget that it's even there. The cross before me, that which I've offered behind me, I am running in the direction of Jesus and I have no intention of going back. This is what he means by keeping our vows. There should be such intention, such aggression, such discipline, as it says in the book of Proverbs, that we're not willing to play this game where we go back and forth and take things off the altar. No, but we say, this thing belongs to you, Lord. Man, that is what commitment truly looks like. But let, let me issue a warning to you. Do not be surprised when placing things on the altar, if there is an immediate temptation to go back and get it. How many of you have ever done this before? You're walking by a restaurant, driving by a restaurant, and you didn't even know you were hungry, and then all of a sudden you smell what they're cooking in the restaurant, you're like, I am starving right now, I need to eat. And has that ever happened to anyone before? Yeah, okay. So we work, facts, thank you, big facts. So, so we, we work out in our garage um, in the mornings, and there's a restaurant down the street from us, and they decide to cook all of their onions like first thing in the morning. And so there's always like this grilled onion smell coming up in our direction. And, and, and man, we'll be in the middle of a workout and suddenly I am like starving. I'm like, I need a number 11 Italiano right now. I am going down the hill to get it. Well, hey, let me warn you, 
When you place things on the altar, do not be surprised as you, walk, as you walk away if the devil doesn't start wafting the scent of that thing in your direction. When he starts trying to entice you to come back to the very thing that you just laid on the altar because your appetite has been awakened for it. Do not be surprised when you lay a relationship on that altar if your sexual appetite is not awakened to a new degree. Do not be surprised if when you lay that opportunity on the altar, the enemy starts wafting that opportunity back in your direction. You're like, I gotta pick up the phone and see if the opportunity's still available. Don't be surprised when that which you laid on the altar begins to cry out, help, <laughs> rescue me. You placed me here, but I wanna be back in your life again. This is what happens. But listen, if we are gonna be people, people of commitment, people who make those vows and truly mean what we're saying to the Lord, we have to stand there and allow the painful process of that thing burning before the Lord to be our act of worship. There must be a willingness in our heart to sacrifice completely, knowing that on the other side of that sacrifice is what God intended for us all along. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Now, I know that what I'm saying right now is no easy task. In fact, let's get ready to conclude. I'll invite the band up because I'm out of time here. But listen, I know that this is not something that, that comes naturally to our human flesh. This falls into the category of much easier said than done, like many of the scriptures in the Bible. But as I've reminded our community of many times, let me remind us of again God never asks us to do things that he has not done first. He's always a trailblazer. Our, our obedience is always a response to something that God has already done for us. And when it comes to leaving and offering on the altar, rest assured, God has already led the way. There's a, a scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. that says, he being Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he didn't even say a word. That, that scripture takes on some new meaning for me today as I consider these, these two different kinds of offerings. Because what it tells me is that Jesus didn't just choose to go to the cross, but he chose to stay on the cross. He didn't work his way off when it was painful. He didn't say, ah, this is, this is a bad idea. There's gotta be another way. No, he stayed on the altar. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he didn't have to. Remember what he said to Peter. He, he said, hey, Peter, if I wanted to right now, I could say one word and there would be thousands of angels that came to my aid. They would rescue me from this situation. I wouldn't have to be nailed to this cross. I wouldn't have to go through with the execution. I could be rescued from the pain that I'm about to endure. But if I were, everything the scriptures have said about me would never come to pass. And so I am willingly choosing to lay my life down as a sacrifice. I'm not gonna find my way off that cross. I'm gonna allow it to consume me completely. The father set his son on that altar and he forgot him. 
What did Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As painful as it was, the father laid him on the altar and he turned his back. He set him and he forgot him. But Jesus was willing to stay there because of what it says later in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. What joy? You and you and you and you and you and you. He stayed on the altar because he understood that if he didn't, there would be no plan of salvation available to us. And because he stayed, the apostle John was able to write, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, broken promises, messed up past, sinful, whoever believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. He led the way in this Ola sacrifice. And that is why he has the audacity to look you in the eye and say, now follow me. Lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow me. Despite the painful and awkwardness of that invitation, it is the invitation. Lay everything on the altar because on the other side, you get all of him in return. And that's the invitation I wanna to issue today to those who are of faith and those who might come to faith today. What is it that you've taken off the altar? Will you take that thing back and will you let it burn? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. Lord, in, in response to this, for those who've been following you in the room, we just take inventory for a moment. We consider the things that we've placed and removed and placed and removed from the altar. And God, we repent as David Guzik told us we should a moment ago in that excerpt from the theologian. We want this to be a sin that we understand is a big deal. God, we repent and say we're sorry for being uncommitted to those things which we laid before you. And today we ask for a fresh revelation of that which you are encouraging us to lay on the altar. If it is a relationship, if it's an area of discipline in our lives, if it's our futures, whatever it is, would you speak to us today? Show us what needs to, to be placed and left And if some of us consider that this morning, I, I wanna issue an invitation to anyone in the room that would say, the thing that needs to go on that altar is my life. I need to hand everything over to Christ today. I've been at a distance from him. And I don't want you to make this decision hastily. We've warned ourselves about that in scripture already. But maybe you've been in a process or on a journey and today you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. It's time to step over that line and to fully commit your life to him. If that's you, I wanna pray a prayer of commitment with you before you leave this morning. And so that I can pray with you, I just ask real briefly for you to acknowledge yourself. If, if that's you, would you just quickly look up at me and raise your hand and say, Tim, I wanna pray that prayer along with you today. Thank you, bro, got you right there. Yeah, right up there, awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's all pray this together as a community so that we're not leaving out anybody as we, as we pray. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for sacrificing yours for mine. I accept your forgiveness. I believe you resurrected and I place my faith in you. Help me to be your disciple, to remain committed to this vow until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.